If I haven't met you, my name is Chase Jacobs. I'm the executive pastor here at DSC. We're very glad that you're here. And if you have a Bible, we'd ask that you turn to Genesis chapter 24 this morning. Genesis 24. If you're visiting with us, you're jumping in as we're right in the middle of a series going through the book of Genesis. This is what we do as a church. We uh, pick a book of the Bible and then we preach through the whole book, every word in that book. And we consider what God has to say to us from that word. Because you didn't come to hear what any man had to say. You came to hear what God had to say. Amen? Amen. So we're in Genesis chapter 24 and we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning, we're going to be in all of chapter 24 and the first half of 25. It turns out Genesis 24 is the longest chapter in the whole book of Genesis, coming in at just under 70 verses. So like I said, we've got a lot of work to do, but this is a very important section in the book of Genesis because this concludes the story of Abraham. So we're looking at the end of the Abraham story this morning. If you remember back to when the Abraham story started in Genesis chapter 12, we said that this was kind of the major turn in the whole book of Genesis. This is really kind of the turn in redemptive history. This is when God really starts enacting his plan of fixing everything that went wrong in Genesis chapter 3. He starts working through Abraham and Abraham's offspring to to reconcile and redeem and fix everything that is wrong with the world. So this morning we get to the end of the Abraham story, but we're not to the end of God's story, right? This goes all the way until it finds its fulfillment in the true offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ. And so for our outline this morning, you should have gotten uh, some notes when you came in. Our outline this morning, I really just want us to hone in on two key words or really key concepts that we're just going to think about a lot this morning. Those two words are providence and promises, That's the title of this sermon, Providence and Promises. And so we'll say providence is our key concept for the whole of chapter 24. So if you just want to write a little note at the top in your Bible, this whole chapter is just about God's providence. And then the section that we'll look at in 25, it's all about promises. So let's get into chapter 24 and we'll start with this idea of providence. And before we get into the text, I think it would be helpful for me to define this word providence because it may not be one that you're familiar with. It's a very important theological term It's one that uh, Pastor John Piper has recently written his uh, magnum opus on. It's a book that comes in at about 700 pages, and it's just called Providence. So clearly there's a lot that you could think about and say about this idea of providence. And in that book, Piper defines providence as this, as the act of God purposefully providing for, you hear that? Providing for or sustaining and governing the world. Let me read it again. The act of God purposefully providing for or sustaining and governing the world. Elsewhere, Piper calls it God's purposeful action. So that's what providence is, God's purposeful action. It might help to think about providence in relation to another theological word, one called sovereignty. So we think of this idea of God's sovereignty, meaning that God is in charge of everything. God is in control of everything. He's in control of the whole universe, every big thing. He's in control of every atom that is spinning inside your body right now. God is in control of you. That's his sovereignty. Well, providence is the belief that not only is God in control of everything, but God uses that control to a purposeful end. Okay, so God is in control of everything. That sovereignty, providence is, is that God is using that control to do something purposeful, that God's got a plan. And not only does God have a plan, but God has a good plan. That's God's 
providence. He is working everything out to a good end. This is what Julie read for us in Romans chapter 8 this morning. In verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's God's providence. He's in control, and for God's people, those of you who love God, who worship God, who have faith in God, we know that God, by his providence, is working all things together for good. Amen? So that's the big idea of this chapter 24, providence. So let's get into this. We'll look at the first nine verses, and we'll have them up on the screen. It says, Now Abraham was old, Well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but you will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, well, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. So verse one begins with a really important statement about Abraham. Not just that he was old, well advanced in years, but look at this. The Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. How cool is that? The Lord had blessed Abraham just like he said that he would. So we know from his story that we've looked at over the last few weeks that God has blessed him with wealth and power and status. That God has blessed him with the child of promise, Isaac. That God has even blessed him with a long life, which is something that we're going to look at in chapter 25. So God is blessing Abraham in all things. But we know that the promises that God has has made to Abraham are not just for Abraham, are they? Those promises, those blessings, they weren't just for Abraham, but they were meant to be for his offspring. And and it was going to go through his offspring and bless who? The whole world. So while Abraham is blessed, he knows that the fulfillment of God's promises is really still future. Abraham is still looking forward to that promise. He knows that God has said that it's through Isaac, it's through his son, that really all of those promises are going to come to fruition. And so Abraham knows that Isaac and through Isaac's offspring, this is where the promise is going. And yet as he looks at his son Isaac, he says, well, wait, Isaac doesn't have any offspring. Really, Isaac doesn't even have a wife. So he he can't have any offspring. And so these promises that God has made are still future. And Abraham needs to take faithful initiative to ensure that the covenant promises pass on to the next generation. So that's what Abraham is doing when he's talking to this servant in verses two through four. He's taking faithful initiative. And I'm saying he's taking faithful initiative because if you've looked at Abraham's story, you know he has taken some, some less than faithful initiative, hasn't he? 
We know his story, his ups and his downs, and we know that at times he has taken matters into his own hand. He has acted apart from God, apart from God's promises. But that's not what he's doing here. He is acting in faith in God's promises and saying, Isaac needs a wife so that God's promises can continue. And I was just thinking about this with Pastor or, or Minister Tate uh, coming up here and, and talking about our parenting seminar next Saturday that all of us can take faithful initiative in ensuring that God's promises pass on to the next generation, just like Abraham is doing, okay? And so Abraham asks his servant to take a solemn oath. That's what they're doing. And, and back in those days, this was common, the way that you took an oath was that, we'll just say that one man grabbed another man in a very, very private area, and I'm very glad that we don't make oaths this way anymore. I think the handshake was a wonderful cultural development. <laughs> But that's what they're doing. It was different time, different place, different culture. But Abraham is really serious about this. That's what we should see here. Abraham is really serious that he's making the servant swear a solemn oath that he will go and get a wife for Isaac. But not a wife from where he lives. Not a wife from the Canaanites. Because Abraham knows that what's going to matter for his son's wife is that she be faithful to Yahweh. That she not be faithful to these other gods. Abraham knows all the other gods of these Canaanites, where he lives. He knows what they worship. And he knows that, that if his son took one of those wives, she very quickly would lead him into idolatry, lead him out of the covenant that he is in with, with the true God, with Yahweh. And so Abraham says, you can't take a wife for him from the Canaanites, but you also can't let him go back to the land of my fathers. Because that also would jeopardize the covenant. God promised this land. So Isaac has to stay here, but he can't marry any of these ladies. So you have to go get a lady from my family and bring her back here. And it's no wonder that the servant's a little skeptical. He says, Abraham, you're kind of asking for a lot here. Mesopotamia is hundreds of miles away. So I have to go all the way over there. I have to find a woman in your family and convince her and her family that she should come back here where you have no property except a, a cave that you bury people in. You live in tents. You, you are surrounded by enemies. And I should convince her that she should come here and marry your son. What if she doesn't come? What, I mean, do you realize what you're asking? It's crazy. And that's why Abraham, in, in verse eight, he kind of lets him off the hook a little bit. He's saying, look, man, I'm not, I'm not asking you to promise that you'll be successful. I'm asking you to promise that you'll try, but you will be successful. How does Abraham know that he's going to be successful? Look again at verse seven. The Lord the God of heaven who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. Abraham believes in God's providence. Abraham has faith. He remembers all of the ways that God has led him and guided him in his past. Remember even last week, Abraham calls God the provider that's his conclusion. God, you are the provider. And so now he's here in this situation and he is certain that God is going to give his servant success because God's provider. He's going to do it. You shall take a wife for my son Isaac because God promised that Isaac will be blessed and the blessing will pass through him. And what is so cool, what is so cool about these verses right here, these are the last recorded words of Abraham in the whole Bible. This is the note that he goes out on. We know the way his story started. We've seen the ups. We've seen the downs. But this is how he ends in such faith in God that God will do what God said that he would do. So in verse 9, the servant makes the oath. And then look at verse 10. 
Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. So he goes on this long journey. He ends up in the city, goes to the well. It makes sense. The camels are thirsty. But this is also super strategic because this is where all the ladies are at. It says it was the job of the women to go out in the evening when it wasn't as hot. They would go and get the water. And so if you're looking for a wife, this is where you would go. Actually, in the Old Testament, there are two other cases of husbands meeting their wives at wells. Okay, we have Jacob and Rachel, which we're going to see just a little bit in the book of Genesis. And then we have Moses and his wife, Zipporah, in the book of Exodus. So if you are a single guy and you are trying to... <laughs> I don't know what the equivalent of a well is today. I'm sorry. It was so easy back then. You just... But no, he goes to the well. The women are coming out. It's the time for the women to come and get water. But how's he going to know? How is he going to know who the right one is? How is he going to know who should marry his servant, Isaac? What's he do? What every man should do when you're trying to find a wife. Pray about it. He prays. Look at verse 12. He says, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. When you trust in God's providence, it leads to prayer. When you trust in God's providence, it should lead you to prayer. Because prayer is one, a demonstration that you believe that our God is able to answer prayers. And it says that you believe that God is good. And he's got good purposes for your life. And he wants you to ask him. He wants you to ask that he would provide for you according to his will. And so this is what the servant prays. And then notice on what basis the servant is praying. Look at verse 12. He roots his request in the Lord's covenant faithfulness. In his steadfast love to Abraham. In his chesed. He's saying, God, you have promised to be faithful, to love Abraham forever and ever. So on that basis, I'm praying to you. And what does he pray? It's this kind of crazy prayer. He prays that he would ask a woman to give him water and that not only would she give him water, but that she would also go and get water for his camels. And so it's this really specific, detailed thing. And one way, he's praying for a woman of character. He's praying for a woman that is servant-hearted and hardworking and generous and merciful. So in one way, he's praying for a godly woman. But in another way, he's praying for a very clear sign from the Lord. He's asking God for his guidance, for God to make his will clear this way. This is how he'll know that God has shown steadfast love. And so he's praying for this very specific thing. And then look at verse 15. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. He's not even done praying. 
And here comes Rebecca with her water jar. So in verse 17, the servant asks, can I have a drink? And she says, drink, my Lord. And then verse 18, she says, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. And he's saying, this is it. This is the sign. No sooner had I prayed for it. And then God answered that prayer. He gave me this guidance. And not only has he given her, him that guidance, but he's also given a woman who is described as beautiful and virginal and hardworking and servant-hearted and generous. When we named our daughter, we named her middle name Rebecca because our prayer was that she would show character like Rebecca does here, that she would be a woman like this. And so no sooner is he done praying than than she shows up. But there's one more test. There's one more test. This needs to be a woman from Abraham's family. Remember, that's what Abraham said. Now, the text has already clued us into this, but the servant doesn't know yet. And so verse 22, he, he takes out all of this jewelry and gives it to her, including a nose ring. That's what this is, a nose ring, which is pretty rad. So he gives her a nose ring. And in verse 23, he asks her, whose daughter are you? Who's your family? And what's she say? I'm Nahor's granddaughter. I'm Abraham's grandniece. In verse 26, this guy just falls down. Look, the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Such a cool story. And now what follows after verse 28 all the way through verse 49 is really interesting. This is really interesting. Interesting because it is basically a verbatim retelling of everything that has just happened in this chapter. Rebecca goes, she goes to her brother Laban in verse 28. Laban is going to be an important character later in the story of Jacob, who's Rebecca's son. Spoilers, sorry. But then in verse 33, the servant goes to her family and he starts recounting everything that has just happened, where he came from, why he came, what specifically he prayed, and how specifically God answered that prayer before he was even done praying it. So this is the reason why this chapter is so long, because it's doubled up. It's telling the same story in precise detail twice. And we should stop and consider the significance of that. Anytime the Bible takes time to repeat itself, that should tell you something important is happening here. Why did Moses, when when paper was at a premium back in these days, why would he spend so much time telling this story twice? I think there's two important reasons. The one's a bit more subtle. I think the first reason is that this passage is all about the beauty and the importance and the blessing of monogamous marriage. The longest chapter in the book of Genesis is about marriage. God loves marriage. Isaac is the only patriarch in the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the only one that only had one wife. And that's God's design. That's the way that this is supposed to be. And so it spends a lot of time celebrating this great institution that God has made, marriage. So I think that's one reason. But I think the second reason is more important that this is repeated because it is such a great example of God's providence. It is such an amazing example of God's purposeful activity in the life of his people to bring about good things for them. Because what is this story? 
God, according to his steadfast love, according to his faithfulness, went before the servant, led him to just the right spot, worked in just the right way to answer the servant's prayer and to fulfill his covenant promises to Abraham. That's what this story is. In doing this little thing and helping Isaac find a wife, God was proving that he would do what he said he would do. He would ensure that the blessings would continue to the next generation, to the next generation, until God's promises were fulfilled and all the world was blessed. That God can do it, God has done it, and he will do it. So this chapter is meant to be an encouragement to the people of God. This chapter is meant to encourage God's people. Think about the first audience that received the book of Genesis. Remember, this is the nation of Israel that's about to go in and take possession of the promised land. They're about to go in and fight their enemies and finally take hold of the land that God had promised to Abraham. You think they don't need to be encouraged? God's gonna go before you. God's gonna work according to his good purposes to bring about what he said that he would do. You can trust God, he's going ahead. I even wonder if Israel would see, would read this story and they wouldn't see themselves a bit in Rebecca. Rebecca has her own kind of exodus. That God works, sends somebody to her where she is, brings her out and into the promised land. And so they would identify with Rebecca and they say, God did it for her, why can't he do it for us? No, he will do it for us because God is about keeping his promises and God works by his providence. So it would have encouraged the original audience, but it should encourage us too. If you believe in Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, you have the same God as Abraham. Amen? You have the same God that works the same way. God is at work in your life. God has promised that he will work everything together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purposes. Notice I said his purposes. It's not your purposes. Okay, God is, God is not about the business of making your plans succeed. He's in the business of making his plans succeed because his plans are way better than your plans. But we can trust that God is working and that God is good and he is working in your life if you believe in Jesus. And you know what? Sometimes it does work out this way, doesn't it? I mean, a lot of times it works out this way, that that we have these stories in our own life where God works so faithfully by his providence to do just such cool things. Does these things in your life and you just say, that was the Lord. And don't we love telling those stories? So it really shouldn't surprise us that this chapter is so long. This is what Christians do all the time. We go all the time. We, We say, listen to this. I was praying this thing this morning and then I went to work and boom, just like that, it happened. We love telling stories like that, don't we? We should tell stories like that more. We should be more sensitive to God's activity in our life when he's doing these little things where he's working to bring about good, even good that we weren't looking for ourselves. We should tell those stories because when we tell those stories, it encourages the people of God just like Genesis 24 does. So sometimes it does work out like this where you're just like, wow, God, you're just so good. You're so faithful. Your mercies are new every morning and I saw it here and here and here. And sometimes it doesn't work out like this. Sometimes it doesn't seem like God is hearing our prayers. Sometimes it doesn't seem like God is working by his providence and we don't understand where God's at or what he's doing. And then especially we remember chapters like Genesis 24. We remember that despite what it looks like in this narrow snapshot of time in our life, God is always working. 
God is always working to bring about good. And so when we can't see it, we trust him and we wait. And that's what this chapter is encouraging us to. No matter what is going on, we can trust him and we can say, like Rebecca's family says in verse 50. So this is her brother and her father. Look at Genesis 24, verse 50. The servant has recounted this whole story. He's told them, listen to this crazy thing. I was praying and then God did it and it just like this and it was so cool. And in verse 50, they say, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebecca is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. This brother's doing a lot of falling down and worshiping. And rightly so. God has given him success. God did just what Abraham said that he was going to do. My angel's going to go before you. He's going to give you success. You're going to take a wife from there. Now after this, starting in verse 53, there's a little bit of drama in the verses that follow because it's a fundamental rule of the universe that weddings bring out drama in people, (laughs) right? A little bit of drama. They're arguing about how long they're gonna stay. Laban wants Rebecca to stay a little bit longer. The servant wants to go back as soon as possible. So in verse 57, they ask Rebecca what she thinks. Do you wanna stay a little bit longer? Do you wanna go? What's she say? She's ready to go. She's ready to go. She's submitting to God's will. And Rebecca's a little Abraham here. You see that? God came to Abraham in chapter 12, said, hey, leave your family, leave your kindred, go to the land that I'll show you and I'm gonna make of you a great nation, I'm gonna bless you. God's coming to Rebecca the same way and Rebecca makes the same journey by faith. She doesn't know how it's gonna work out but she knows everything that's just happened, it's from the Lord. And so I'm gonna go and that's what she does. In verse 60, it says, they blessed Rebecca and said to her, our sister, may you become thousands of 10,000s and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. That sound familiar? That's what God promised Abraham and Isaac in chapter 22. They're speaking the same blessing over her from hundreds of miles away. I think that's God's providence too. And then in verse 63, they've set off, they go back to where Isaac is. And then verse 63, Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. It probably means Isaac was praying. Do you see there's a lot of prayer in this? A lot of prayer. And he lifted up his eyes and he saw and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebecca lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, who's that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, it's my master. So she took her veil, she covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebecca, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted, after his mother's death. It's so beautiful. It's such a beautiful ending to the story. And I love that in this whole long chapter about marriage, the wedding is one verse at the end. <laughs> That's not how we think about it, is it? Oh, no, in, us, in our culture, it's all about the wedding day. What did she wear? What did they eat? How was the venue? Did they do bubbles or sparklers on the thing when they walked out? Moses doesn't care because it's not about the wedding day. It's about the marriage. It's not about the wedding day. It's about the marriage. 
And more than that, is that the marriage has been providentially ordained by God to bring about God's purposes. That's true for Isaac and Rebecca, but that's true for you. What matters is that God is ordaining your marriage. What matters is that if you're not married, you are seeking God's will, God's guidance for whom you marry, and then you trust that God will provide. And if he hasn't, then that's part of God's good purposes too. So you trust God. But if you are married, God ordained that marriage. Just like this story was so crazy, and this is a beautiful story, okay? Maybe your story is different, but God is still sovereign. He is still in charge of who you married, and so you can trust God even there, and that you can know that even in your marriage now, good or bad, difficult, okay, God is working to bring about good for his purposes and his glory in your marriage. So seek his will even more if you are married and pray for your marriage. So it's about the marriage, but more than that, the point here, the immediate point is that God's covenant promises to Abraham are now secure. God has provided a wife for Isaac so the blessing can pass on to the next generation. Remember, that was the point at the beginning. Abraham knows Isaac needs a wife so that he can have offspring and God's promises can be fulfilled. Well, God has done just what Abraham said that he would do. But notice how interesting Abraham's not even mentioned here at the end. He's not mentioned when Isaac marries Rebekah. Isaac's the new Abraham. And then Rebecca is positioned as the new Sarah. She is literally taking Sarah's place. And so the whole emphasis on this is we have moved from one generation of blessing to the next generation of blessing, but the promises are the same. And so that's where we get to this next key concept in chapter 25. And I'm gonna move through this part fairly quickly. Don't worry. Promises is a big idea over this whole section of chapter 25. Because this section here, the first 18 verses, is the conclusion. It's wrapping up all of the ends of the Abraham story. It tells the end of Abraham's life. It actually tells the end of Ishmael's life, too. So you know what this is like? If you ever watch a movie, and at the end, they show you what happened to all the characters. You know, and they kind of say, you know, so-and-so went on to do this. Well, what you're looking for is you want to see, was there something in the story that foreshadows the outcome of that person's life? That's what you want to see is you want to tie this nice little bow on top of that character's story for what happened. Well, that's what happens in this section. It's telling the end of Abraham, what happened with the rest of his life, and for Ishmael. And the big idea over this whole section is that for these men, God did just what he promised. God did just what he promised. So that's the big idea. You take these two parts, chapter 24 and this part of 25. This is the idea that not only does God intend to work all things together for good by his providence. But God tells us what the good is in advance. That's what God's promises are. They're him telling us beforehand the good things are that he plans on accomplishing for his people. And so this section is telling us that God promises and fulfills those promises. So specifically, there are three things in this section, three promises that God fulfills. First, in verses one to six, we see God fulfilling his promise to Abraham that many nations would come from him. 
That was the promise that God made to Abraham in chapter 17. This is when God changed his name from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. When verse one of this chapter, it says that after Sarah died, Abraham took another wife named Keturah, and they had six sons. And then those sons went on to have sons. We think of what God says in chapter 17 to Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. We know ultimately that's fulfilled through Christ in the church. And so when we look in the book of Revelation, we see a multitude that no one can number taken from every tribe and tongue and people and nations, this multitude of nations. That's the ultimate fulfillment. But here, right here, we see the beginning of that promise because all of these kids that Keturah had It says that Abraham blessed them and he sent them away from the promised land. That's what it says in verse six. He sent them away from his son Isaac because Isaac was gonna get this land. This was for Isaac, but he still blessed his sons and sent them out. And every one of those sons and their sons became tribes that the nation of Israel would have been familiar with at the time of Moses. These are all tribes. These are all nations listed here. That's why their names are listed. So Israel would be looking around and seeing all these tribes and say, holy cow, God did it. God did just what he said he was going to do to Abraham. He was going to make a multitude of nations come out from him. And we can count like 12 right here. God fulfilled that promise, at least in part, right here in verses 1 to 6. The second promise in verses 7 to 11 is a promise that, God, that Abraham would live for many years and die in peace. Look at verse 7. These are the days of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahairoi, So if you remember Genesis 15, 15, God says this to Abraham, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. Now none of us has control over when we die. Abraham had no control over living a long life. He had no control over the circumstances of his being buried, but God is in control. And so God said, you're going to live to a good old age. And then this part in chapter 25, it's picking up that same language. I would say living to 175 qualifies as living to a good old age. And then he died, just like God said he would. And he died in peace. In verse 9, Isaac and Ishmael, who have been at enmity with each other, bury the hatchet and then bury their dad. They come together in peace just like God said that they would. God is fulfilling that promise. And then verse 11, it's an important verse. After Abraham died, God blessed Isaac. The blessing has moved. So that's the second, the last promise that we see fulfilled in this section is in verses 12 to 18. This is the promise that God is going to bless Ishmael. So Ishmael is Abraham's other son by his uh, wife's servant, Hagar. Verses 12 to 16, it lists 12 sons that Ishmael had. Verse 16 says that these were 12 princes according to their tribes. Verse 17 says, these are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. 
They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. So this is the Arabian Peninsula. It says he settled over and against all his kinsmen. So you could go back to chapter 16. There God is talking to Hagar, Ishmael's mother. And he says, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And he says, Ishmael shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Or in chapter 17, God says to Abraham, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac. So you see what Moses is doing? He's beating that same beat. God said it here, he did it here. God said it here, he did it here. God said it here, he did it here. If God says it, you can count on it coming true. Amen? And it is proving it right here. God has blessed Ishmael for Abraham's sake, just like he said he would. He hasn't blessed Ishmael redemptively. He hasn't blessed Ishmael with the covenant promises. Those are all for Isaac. But he has blessed him. He has made him great. He has made him into a great nation, just like those other nations, just like all of the nations descended from the sons of Noah, all of the nations that were scattered at the Tower of Babel, all of the nations that God is going to bless through the offspring of Abraham. That's the point. We go back to the biggest promise that God has made. Through Abraham, through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I can fulfill this promise. I fulfilled this promise. I fulfilled this promise. You can count on me fulfilling that promise. And that's what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. Remember what Julie read for us in Romans 8. God would not withhold his only son from us. How much more will he not give us all things? He blessed Abraham in all things. In Christ, we are blessed in all things. God has promised it. So as I said, I have a little girl, Everett Rebecca. And because I have a little girl, I am an expert in fairy tales. (laughs) Especially the ones that have princesses in them. And if you think back to this Rebecca story and what God is doing there, it's a fairy tale, isn't it? It reads very much like a fairy tale. Think about it from the perspective of Rebecca. She is this beautiful, pure, kind-hearted woman, working, getting water from a well, and then in rides this guy on a camel. <laughs> and she doesn't know anything. She doesn't know who this is. And he says, will you give me some water? And she responds the way that she always would. Yes, and hey, let me get some water for your camels too, because she's that kind of woman. And then the guy gets off his camel and hands her jewelry and says, hey, so my master is actually your relative and he's a king. He's a king in the land of Canaan and he's looking for a a wife for his son, the prince Isaac. And his God, Yahweh, led me on a journey right to you. Rebecca, God has chosen you and he wants you to come back and marry Prince Isaac, and you're going to have riches and wealth, glory. You're going to live happily ever after. So just come, come into the kingdom. This is yours. And that's what Rebecca does. 
And that is her story. She does live a wonderful life after this. She is blessed after this, and it's, it's a fairy tale. And since I'm an expert in fairy tales, I have come to this conclusion that the reason that we love fairy tales, and I'm not just talking to you women. Men, you know what I'm talking about. The reason we love stories like this is because we want that to happen to us. We all want something wonderful to come crashing into our life unexpectedly and make everything better. Friends, that's the gospel. That's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And it's not a fairy tale. It's true. Every single one of us. And you say, well, not me. I'm not a Rebecca. Rebecca is beautiful and pure and kind. Of course, stuff like that happens to her. Of course, this has happened to all of you people. But not me. God could never love me. Friend, let me tell you, none of us are Rebecca. And, and Rebecca's not even Rebecca. Actually, if you keep on reading in the book of Genesis, she has her flaws too, okay? It comes out. <laughs> but no, all of us are really more like the woman in John chapter 4. The Samaritan woman. She's often called what? The woman at the well. Here's another woman that a bridegroom meets at a well. If you're not familiar with John chapter four, I would encourage you to just go read that. Maybe you can talk about this in your community groups or your parents, you can read this to your kids. Look at all the similarities between John chapter four and Genesis 24, it's so cool. But the woman in John chapter four, she's not a Rebecca. The text says she's got a string of sinful relationships in her past and, and when she talks, she's kind of bristly. It says that she's going out in the middle of the day to get water, not the time when women go, because she's ashamed. And Jesus goes right to her. Jesus, in his providence, meets her just the right time, just the right place. And it's not the servant of the prince, it's the prince himself. And he comes to her, and he doesn't give her jewelry, he gives her promises. I'll give you eternal life. I'll give you everything. And that is what Jesus does for each and every one of us. That's the gospel that God in his providence has found every one of us right where we are, even this morning, right at the right time, right where we are. And he says, I know who you are and I've chosen you. I've come all this way for you. I love you and I wanna give you everything forever and ever and ever. All you have to do is take this journey of faith. Come with me into my kingdom. Let go of your past. Let go of what you're holding on to. Believe in me. Come in and it's all yours. All of the riches of my immeasurable grace poured out on you forever and ever, happily ever after. As I said, God loves marriage. The reason God loves marriage is it's a picture of the gospel. Your marriage is meant to be a picture of the gospel to the whole world. In Ephesians chapter five, the apostle Paul says that Jesus is the bridegroom and the whole church is the bride. And he says that the bridegroom loved the church so much that he gave himself up for her. That he died on the cross for all of her sins, for all of her sinfulness, for all of the ways that she has not been a good and pure and virtuous person. He died for that so that he could wash her, forgive her, 
and make her presentable. The bride that we all would want to be. The beautiful, virginal, lovely bride that Jesus will cherish forever and ever. That's what he's done. And if you have believed in Jesus, then these promises that he's made, that he's going to make it all work out in the end, those are true for you. And if you haven't believed in Jesus yet, maybe God in his providence is coming to you right now and he's inviting you in. Will you come? Let's pray. Oh God, now as we consider the testimony of these three believers, these people that you have brought out of darkness and into light, Lord, that, uh, that you and your providence have rescued, God. I pray that you would help us to consider again this beautiful gospel of your salvation. Lord, we thank you for coming to us. We thank you for rescuing us. We thank you for your grace to us, your providence in our lives. And Lord, we thank you for the promises that you have made to us. And I pray that you would encourage us, that we can trust you, that when you're doing good things, we can praise you. And Lord, even when we can't see what you're doing, we know that you're working everything together for good, for the glory of your name. Amen.